You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The following program comes to you in ear-popping, breathtaking, colorphonic, acoustosensual 3D and wide-spectrum Earmax, an experience that will change the future of radio broadcasting. It's Are We Alone? And I'm Seth Shostak. Hang on. 3D reverb off. Okay, I got it. I'm Molly Bentley. When James Cameron's film Avatar opened, it was to higher than high expectations. It promised to dazzle moviegoers with technical wizardry that would take them to another world. You are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora. Breakthroughs in 3D, which would put you square in the action. A fantastic fictional journey to the tropical jungle of the Earth-sized moon Pandora and a highly emotional involvement with its native inhabitants, the Navi. The movie has dazzled audiences, and not just special effects aficionados, but biologists, astrobiologists. Pandora's novel, living, thriving, lusciously evolved alien biosphere is just the sort of place biologist Keith Cowing would like to visit and did briefly when he saw the film. Keith used to work at NASA, and he's now the editor of nasawatch.com, a non-NASA website devoted to news and commentary on the agency, which is relevant, as you will hear, because Keith is critical of how NASA has reacted, or rather not reacted, to the film. Well, I'm a biologist, and I'm a stickler for detail, and when I came out of that film, I didn't want to. I felt that I had been completely immersed in a world that had been meticulously contrived to look as if it was real. Well, can you give me some examples of something that amazed you then? Well, it it, it baffled and amazed at the same time. I was just looking at the plants. I saw this in IMAX 3D the first time, so I was spoiled. But just the meticulous nature of how the fronds and the the fern-like things were put together, how they undulated and responded to the breeze. I used to be a sign language interpreter, so I'm very big on looking at facial gestures. And the faces of the Navi, these constructed avatar-type people, uh, were, were meticulous. I, I was getting messages from these computer-generated faces, and I've never experienced that before. All right. Well, now, this story here is about a habitable world, a, a, a moon, actually, a big moon about the size of the Earth called Pandora. This world wasn't very far away, right? It's uh, in the nearest uh, other star system. Is that correct? That's my understanding. It's one of the two large sun-like stars in Alpha Centauri, Alpha Centauri A, which is 4.3 light-years from our sun, 
So it's, if you're going to visit a star, it's about as close as you can possibly get. There's a small red star in that system, Proxima Centauri, which is a little bit closer, but it's a lot cooler. And, and you described the, 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 the moon for people who haven't seen the film. It was a very appealing moon, was it not? This was a place you might want to go. Well, Jay Cameron said up front he wanted you to want to go there. It was verdant, luxurious, colorful. The, the bioluminescence apparently is the, uh, a major theme of the biota on that world. So it was beautiful at night, it was beautiful at day. The, the creatures they created were cat-like with a beautiful blue skin, and they were spelt and athletic. So he clearly picked a biology, a theme, an approach that was attractive. There's also a storyline here, and the storyline concerns not whether Pandora could exist, but what would happen if we found it and went there. Yeah, okay, and I guess there's a backstory. I mean, why did we go there? Was it, uh, did a probe go there and suddenly discover this unobtainium, or was it a privately sponsored mission? I don't know. Would it put it past me that we would go find a world like this and mess it up? Yeah, we've, we've done it to our planet. But there's a bit of an improbable aspect of this that you'd go all that way just to dig this stuff up. So I don't know the backstory, but I got to think that by going to this world and messing it up, you would almost, and it comes out in the movie, you would almost you know, create a backlash of people who wanted to save it. Yeah, well, now, you mentioned that we went there to dig up this stuff, and it's called, rather surprisingly, unobtainium. It seems to me that that was a lack of imagination there. But unobtainium, can you tell me anything about why we want unobtainium and you know, why we have to go to Pandora to get it? As I understand it, it's a room temperature or just you know regular temperature superconductor and the reason the world looks the way it does, these the floating mountains, the Hallelujah Mountains, and some of the strange arcing things that look like lines of force from a magnetic field. Apparently, there's a lot of magnetic fields at work here, and you bring in these, this mineral that has something to do with the way that the moon was formed or something like that. And it's responsible for some of the unique aspects of Pandora, but having room temperature superconductors, that's something that people are really trying to get right now. Whether it's economically feasible to haul that over interstellar distances, I don't know. i got to think that if you have the ability to go to a star in a very short period of time, you've already figured out not only room temperature superconductors, but other things as well. But, you know, you don't want to get too much into it because that sort of ruins the story. Okay, well, I can understand that we might want to uh, bring back some room temperature superconductors to make uh, maglev trains feasible on this planet or something like that. But indeed, I mean, I, I actually, uh, after I saw the film, I wrote a little review in which I took on this idea that we might mine other planets. And, of course, in the film, they give the idea of how long it took people to get to Pandora. And, and it was, you know, it implied a speed uh, a fair fraction of the speed of light. So I worked out what the transport costs for uh, unobtainium would be, and it was fully equivalent to ordering a book from Amazon and paying $60,000 for the shipping. So I mention this only because this is a frequent refrain in sci-fi films that we're going to go out there and exploit the natural resources. Well, you know, we might go and exploit them, but use them locally. Would we go somewhere? I mean, we've done it on our own planet. We, we go to, I mean, now there's a big argument about the polar regions, now that the global warming is going to free them up. Do we go up to the polar north and start looking for oil? Do we go to Antarctica? I mean, we don't really need too much temptation. The moment there's a chance to go dig something up, we tend to just go do it. So, you know, would we do it over interstellar distances? You and I could sit here now and say, nah, but we don't know what this unobtainium stuff really is. It might be that sexy and, and desirable to actually want to do this. What about the uh, inhabitants of Pandora, these, uh, these blue guys? That do, <laughs> I think one of the British newspapers described the film as uh, dances with Smurfs. Uh, they appeal to you? Not appeal to you? 
Well, I thought it was pretty funny, but you know the, the creatures they created, and I, you know, again, I'm a biologist, so I'm looking at them, and I'm, you know, wondering: what, is a bipedal life form the only way that you could have sapient creatures using tools? I don't know. I'm very interested in the fact that they only have four limbs, whereas everything else seems to have six. Maybe they have vestigial limbs. They are described as having naturally occurring carbon fibers in their bones. That's interesting because there are a lot of organisms that mineralize some interesting materials. The fact that they have this bioluminescence as an overall theme is very interesting. But the thing that sort of got me was that the cue or the what looks like their ponytail, which is actually this giant like, you know, modem cable that they plug into each other. And this is sort of where a lot of people will probably depart from saying, oh, that's not realistic. Well, you know, you start looking at the way that uh, you know, we're designing artificial limbs and so forth and the way that you can interface with neural systems. Taking it a step further, there are large stands of aspen trees on Earth, which are actually just one organism that just you know, popped up again and again. Would creatures evolve the capability to plug into each other? I don't know. It's an intriguing possibility here. You've written on your website that uh, you thought that NASA should have made more of this film. They should have tied themselves to the uh, to the ideas of this film. I absolutely do, and I was I was upset actually. Uh, the the astrobiology folks didn't run into it. NASA has been studying and astrobiology for well over a decade now, and astrobiology is you know understanding the life universe and everything, and that's what this movie is pretty much about. And it's also taking some very complex ideas of a, a world orbiting another world and, and the different sorts of life that might be there. And since, you know, Cameron has really thought this through, it's a very well-done guesstimate of what a world could be like. So if NASA's interested in astrobiology and has spent all this money on it, one would think that they jump at the opportunity to at least do some promotions in the theater. And, of course, NASA's not shy about helping out with movies before. And they, they seem to pick weird ones, like Armageddon and Space Cowboys. I mean, they were funny, but they weren't that good in terms of accuracy. And they had a little bit of a involvement with contact. So I had asked the folks, my friends at NASA headquarters, you know, why aren't you going to be involved in this? And they sort of went back and forth. And finally they said, well, we think it's going to be a flop. A month or so later, after you know, the movie came out and Cameron made his first billion, he came in and actually sat down with NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden, and they had a little chat. I don't know what they talked about, but hopefully when the next movie comes out, NASA will have a little bit more involvement and see the opportunity here. I mean, NASA's always bemoaning the fact that the public doesn't understand what we do, and yet here you have the public voting with their discretionary funds to go see this movie again and again and again. What, what Specifically, what would you have NASA do? If nothing else, they could have had a booth at every theater handed out material saying, hey, we're studying this stuff right now. Here's our astrobiology program. Here's our planetary science program. The telescopes that we're looking to build right now could see worlds of this size uh, around other stars. We've detected every day, every week, something comes out in Science and Nature, which talks about I was something today about using a little telescope that's actually detected some of the uh, putative chemicals that are associated with life in the atmosphere of a giant planet a number of light years away. So this is something your tax dollars are being used for every day. And, you know, it's a wonderful chance, I think, for NASA to just hand out flyers or just say, hey, hey, we're doing this too. Well, Keith Cowing, thank you so very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Keith Cowing is a biologist who used to work for NASA. He's now the editor of nasawatch.com. We have to settle for visiting Pandora in the movie theaters because this moon orbits a planet in the Alpha Centauri star system, which is 4.3 light years away, and travel to other stars is not yet possible. 
However, the idea that a world like Pandora could exist is just what astrobiology is all about. Scientists believe there are alien biospheres out there that could be teeming with life, so they hunt for extrasolar planets or exoplanets, that is, worlds beyond our star system. Fifteen years ago, there were few known planets around stars beyond the nine of our own solar system, and that number's been reduced to eight since Pluto was reclassified as a dwarf planet. But since then, astronomers have found hundreds of extrasolar planets, worlds orbiting other suns. We've moved an enormous way in the last 15 years, say, from speculating about planets around other stars to actually knowing that they're out there and finding them. I mean, that's a huge advancement for our knowledge. It's a huge advancement for the human race. Gary Davis is the director of the Joint Astronomy Center in Hilo, Hawaii, where he and other scientists have been using ground-based telescopes to monitor the light from planets orbiting sun-like stars. The Keck telescope is especially good for this, thanks to its perch in the dry and clear air atop Mauna Kea on Hawaii's Big Island. All told, more than 400 exoplanets have been found in the last few years. And NASA's Kepler telescope is out in space now on the hunt for Earth-like extrasolar planets and possibly some big moons. Another telescope on Mauna Kea, the United Kingdom Infrared Telescope, or UKIRT, might also turn up some Earth-sized worlds. If Pandora exists, an exoplanet hunter may soon find it. Gary, uh, exoplanets, finding planets around other stars, that's an industry now that's been going for at least a dozen years. Is there something new and exciting in this field, or is it kind of mature and, you know, just another workaday result? This field is far from mature. In fact, we've only just scratched the surface because, of course, we believe there ought to be millions of planets out there. And so uh, the emphasis is on uh, developing new ways of finding them, if you like. But most of the planets, or at least a great fraction of them, are what are called, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of like Jupiter. They're big, presumably gassy planets, the kind of planets that E.T. might not want to call home. Um, are those the kind of typical planets that the universe holds? Or is there some reason to think that, uh, you know, we're not getting a very accurate sample? It's the latter, of course. So we would call this a selection effect. And the reason it happens is the techniques that we've developed to find these planets so far uh, are more sensitive to uh, large planets, gas giant planets, as you describe, which happen to be very close to their host stars. And so it's no coincidence that, by and large, that's the type of planet we've found so far. Maybe you could just... Uh quickly outline for me how it is that you find a planet around another star. You don't actually see them. No, not at all, because uh, planets are tiny and dark right next door to a star which is large and bright. You know, so it's a question of contrast. It's absolutely impossible to actually see them. So we have to detect these planets by indirect techniques. And the one that has been the most successful so far we call the radial velocity technique. And basically what happens there is that when a planet goes around a star in its orbit, the star wobbles a little bit. And that happens just because of gravity. It happens with our own sun. You know, as Jupiter goes around the sun, our own sun wobbles only a tiny little bit. And so now we have the ability to look at other stars in the galaxy and look for that telltale wobble. And it's very difficult. It's very technically challenging to do that. But once we see that wobble, we infer that there must be a, a planet going around it, which is producing that wobble. So this wobble technique, which I guess really just amounts to seeing the stars dance because they have planets around them, is great for finding the heavy-duty guys, the, the big dogs, but not the small dogs that might be the kind of worlds where E.T. might hang out. Kepler, of course, is going to be looking for planets that are the same size as Earth, and it's supposed to sort of, uh, you know, sweep up uh, dozens of these things in the next three years. Where, where does that leave you guys with telescopes on the ground? Well, Kepler uh, uses a different technique. You're absolutely right. It uses what we call the transit technique. 
and it will look for planets which pass across the face of the star. And so for a short period of time, the star gets a little bit dimmer. And that's been done from the ground as well. You can do that with small telescopes. The big advantage about Kepler, of course, is that being in space, it will find hundreds of these things, and it will look out at a field and just monitor these stars for years, looking for that telltale dimming sign. So Kepler is a useful addition to the arsenal. Right? It'll do different things than we've done from the ground. It will find a different type of planet, a different signature. But the key thing about Kepler is, great though it will be, it will find planets around stars which are actually quite a long way from us. Now, it'll be great because it'll find Earth-sized planets, and we haven't found many of any of those so far. So, so that's a step forward, but they're all an awfully long way away from us, and that's the way Kepler's been set up. So the next thing we want to do is to find Earth-sized planets around nearby stars, and that requires a different technique again. Is, is it secret? Can you tell me? Not at all. It's the wobble technique, basically. Uh, the wobble technique has been used on optical telescopes so far, and the stars we see with optical telescopes are, you know, fairly large and bright, stars like our sun. And so it's not surprising when you're looking for planets, hoping to find planets like the Earth, you look around stars that are like our sun. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do, right? But small planets like the Earth create a wobble in the star which is small. And so we're looking for really tiny wobbles now. And finding those tiny wobbles in big bright stars is difficult. The way to find them is to look at small, faint stars. Now, a, a planet the size of the Earth going around a small, faint star will produce a bigger wobble. And that's only because the star itself yeah. is lighter weight, right? Yeah, 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 it's because the star is smaller. So that's the technique. We, we have to look at faint, small stars. Well, it's really difficult to do that with optical telescopes because they're small and they're faint, right? So the solution to this problem is to use an infrared telescope and to use that same wobble technique, but, but to look in the infrared instead. So this is a type of light we can't see with our eyes, but, uh, but it's where faint stars emit their light. So that's what we do with one of our telescopes here in Hawaii. It's called the United Kingdom Infrared Telescope. It does infrared astronomy. We look at faint stars all the time. So now what we're seeking to do, and we've uh, applied for the funds to do this, uh, is to build a new instrument which will take this technique that's been used with optical stars to look around these small faint stars to look for the signs of telltale wobble there and that will hopefully produce some earth mass planets around stars which are quite close to us all right finally gary surely after a dozen years of finding planets with this wobble technique you must have some idea of how frequently uh, a star will have an earth-like world encircling it do, do you have any idea whatsoever Ah, uh -huh. well all we have is theory because you say we've been doing this for 12 years, isn't that an awfully long time? But let's face it, uh, we as a race have been wondering for centuries whether there are planets around other stars out there. And it's only 12 years ago that we learned that's true for the first time. You know, this is a very exciting time for us. So the answer is no, I can't give you some idea of how many Earth-like worlds are out there. There might be lots of them, or they might be quite rare. We don't know, and that's why we have to go looking for them. Gary Davis, thank you so much for speaking with me. A pleasure. Gary Davis is the director of the Joint Astronomy Center in Hilo, Hawaii. Coming up, can we find a habitable planet? Sure. Can we visit one and explore it? Well, I don't know, maybe. But how about investing in extraterrestrial real estate? Timber! 
That's up for debate on Pave New Worlds. It's Are We Alone? From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. We now convene the Congressional Congress of Mars. We've assembled our fellow Martians here today to discuss matters of great interest regarding self-government on the Red Planet and the means of preserving our way of life. All in favor with proceeding with this meeting, say Zirkel. Good. In matters of autonomy and issues for the public Martian good... If Martians had a government, well, that would be good news. Not only would we have a central body to deal with to learn about life on the Red Planet and maybe negotiate vacation timeshares, it would mean there were Martians, life, intelligent life. But, alas, there is no Martian government and no Martians, at least none that we found so far. So the planet is ours for the taking, right? I mean, what's to stop us? As humans move further into space, it's a real question. What is our ethical obligation to Mars or any planet, living or not? What kind of visitors do we want to be when we or our robots set foot on alien worlds, as some have done already? Like visitors to Antarctica expected to tread carefully on the fragile environment? Or like the frontiersmen and women on the shores of 17th century North America with axes and plows in hand? Exploit or explore? Catherine Denning, you're an anthropologist who has spent a lot of time thinking about our interactions with putative aliens. What's the situation with going to Mars, for instance? Is it finders keepers? Is possession nine points of the law? Or do we have the right to colonize the red planet? Well, the first thing you'd need to do is ask the Martians. Assuming that they can't or won't talk, then what we need to do is refer that to humanity. What are our responsibilities to other worlds with life? What are our responsibilities to different forms of life? And we have to be prepared for the, the fact that people will have different opinions about that. And we can see that in the uh, arguments about common resources here on Earth. Well, give me an example. I mean, uh, you know, wh- where do we do this on Earth? Sure. Okay. So classic examples would be things that we designate as the common heritage of humanity under, say, the World Heritage Act of the UN. And that includes all things like parks, um, you know, special world heritage zones um, that have been designated as protected zones that should be preserved for all humanity. Um, similarly, some archaeological sites are like that. And the idea behind that is that they should belong to no one in particular and everyone in general, and that we should all have a say in what happens to them, and they should have some kind of protection from development, and they should have some kind of protection from private commercial interests. Now, it's a in one way, it's a beautiful theory. It tends not to work that way in practice, though. When we're looking at the case of Mars then, and, you know, should we colonize? Do we have that right? All of these things. Some will say, first come, first served. Some will say, save it. And some will say, pave it. I, I think of Antarctica and these uh, hmm. connections because there's a piece of relatively newly discovered real estate, and they've decided that it really doesn't belong to everyone. I don't think everyone agrees with that, actually. I think the British feel that they do own parts of it because they explored it 100 years ago. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, 
uh, and consequently, you know, they haven't opened it up to condo development or whatever. They haven't paved it over. Mm-hmm. But if they were to find some valuable, let's say, oil mm-hmm. in Antarctica, wouldn't the picture change rather quickly? Uh, or, or would people still adhere to these international agreements? Well, indeed, as soon as you have a resource that can be exploited and when, as soon as there's money to be made and as soon as private corporations have the means by which to do that or governments, um, then that's precisely when you get into battles over territory. And it's actually these things lead to war. They lead to all kinds of unpleasant consequences. Well, we've been uh, approaching this in mm-hmm. terms of what we should do, we being all of humanity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, uh, you alluded to the possibility that maybe we should ask the Martians. After all, they were on the planet for a lot longer than you know we will be. And consequently, the question arises, do they have some sort of rights, the fact that they're there, the fact that it is their planet, they evolved there and so forth and so on? Or do we say, hey, look, in the end, they're just microbes, and I don't worry about the rights of microbes on a piece of property I buy that I want to put a you know high rise on? So, I mean, we've got the intertwining of two different things, the rights of life and... Uh and, and property rights. Because remember as well, in some traditions, you actually can't own land. You can't own property because it is not there to be owned. Humans do not have that kind of jurisdiction. Well, that was the view of the Native Americans here. North America, right? Some. I would actually hesitate to generalize um, mm. in that way. But actually, it was a common viewpoint prior to a movement in medieval Europe referred to as enclosure. There was a time when most property was simply held in common. But then... Part of the basis for the capitalist revolution was the idea that as soon as you invest your labor into something, you own it. And that was an absolutely key revolution. And that has not occurred in all cultures. It has not occurred in all times. So, again, we're kind of coming straight up against something that is naturalized to us today in, in the West, for example. We assume, yes, you, most land you can own. Most uh, creatures, you have some kind of unquestioned right to do with more or less as you please. I mean, we have some rules about, you know, the ethical treatment of animals as in, in labs, as pets. Generally, we take for granted our idea, our, our right to make those decisions, whereas they don't have the right to make those decisions about us. But these things are all contingent, they're cultural, they're recent, and they're questionable. And if we're trying to consciously craft our approach to a new world... It's an opportunity to do a really deep rethink and consider, for example, where have these values gotten us today in the present? Um, Do we like everything that has come with this, Uh, with these ideas of property, with these ideas of rights, with these ideas of ownership? And it's also worth realizing that there are people who are actively trying to reconstruct, for example, our idea of stewardship over the natural world. We can consider ourselves to be outside of nature and kind of looking after it as a favor, or we can consider ourselves to be part of it and responsible to it as we would be to a family member. The case of Mars is a both a, a great hypothetical case for thinking through the, the, the spectrum of possibilities open to us, but it's also a very concrete case that's not too far in the future. What do you think would happen to Mars in the long run over the course of, say, a century? I don't know, and that's exciting. I think that we're going to be seeing private exploitation of Mars to the fullest practical extent, and I think we're going to be seeing it sooner rather than later. And I think that will set all kinds of precedents. Assuming that those powers have some respect for other people's concerns, then perhaps we will see preservation of some swaths of Mars as well. Catherine Denning, thank you so much for uh, talking to me about the possible futures for Martians. A pleasure. Catherine Denning is an anthropologist at York University in Toronto. Me mind on fire, me soul on fire, feeling hot.
Not all alien worlds are like Pandora, lush, teeming with life, sporting a temperate clime. In fact, even though scientists suspect that such habitable worlds are out there, the only truly habitable planet we know about so far is Earth. And Earth is habitable now, even though a lot of people are worried about its future. We only have to look around to see what happens when climates go berserk. Hot and steamy Venus, for instance, endures the mother of all greenhouse effects. And we might learn something useful from studying these other worlds, says planetary astronomer David Grinspoon. You know, they're, they're the obvious lessons, which, which are important, that we teach in intro astronomy. Uh, Venus has a strong greenhouse effect. Don't let this happen to your planet. Mars has a very thin atmosphere, so it has, it's called as a very weak greenhouse effect. And, and those are important. We're also trying to take it to the, the next level of specifics. What can we really learn about the climates of these planets, the history of climate on Venus and Mars, and, and other planets that, that can actually help us do a better job of modeling and predicting climate? on Earth. And there are some interesting directions that that area of inquiry is going in. Well, maybe you could outline, for example, Venus. That's the one that everyone points to these days because it has a lot of carbon dioxide in its atmosphere. And, you know, daytime temperatures on Venus are what, like 900 degrees or something? Yeah, Fahrenheit. Yeah. Okay. Fahrenheit, centigrade. What do you care? Okay. (laughs) When did Venus go bad? How did it go bad? Well, you know, we're still trying to learn about the earliest environment on Venus and, and get planetary missions that can really crack the history. It seems as though there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that Venus started off in a much more Earth-like state and had an Earth-like environment, probably had liquid water oceans, probably had something more like plate tectonics with the the continent shifting around and, you know, recognizable Earth-style geology and climate. And then there was, uh, you know, what we call the runaway greenhouse, where there's this feedback between evaporation of water because Venus is closer to the sun, which makes a, a lot of water vapor in the atmosphere. Water vapor, of course, is a greenhouse gas, and that makes it hotter, which makes more evaporation, and then the whole thing runs away, and the oceans boil, and the hydrogen from that water kind of drifts off into space. And This, this wasn't during recorded history. No, no, no. This is ancient, and in fact, you know, we, we only have circumstantial evidence. It's very hard to know the early history of Venus because the surface isn't that old. There's been a lot of geological activity. The surface we see on Venus, and I mean, I say see with radar and so forth because it's very hard to see the surface of Venus through the clouds. But the surface that we have imaged doesn't go back to this ancient epoch. So we see some clues in the atmosphere and the you know, there's a lot of heavy hydrogen, which means the light hydrogen has escaped and things like that that point in this direction. And we know that the sun has been getting hotter and it started off a lot cooler. So we have reason to believe that Venus had this early Earth-like state. And we're still trying to piece together the history of how Venus got from that, to us, benign state to the incredibly uh, hot and dry state that it's in today. And, you know, we, we have a scenario. We have physics and climatology explanations that make sense, but we don't have enough evidence to be sure that we've got it right yet. And that's why uh, these missions are so important. But you've talked about how this might be applied to our own situation here on Earth. Obviously, the Earth isn't about to get closer to the sun. Are we in any danger of this kind of runaway greenhouse effect? I mean, it sounds to me like those are really different stories, Venus and Earth. What what can we learn from Venus that 
we really could use here. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the more sort of abstract but very interesting threat is that in the long run, Earth probably will go the way of Venus. The sun has gotten hotter and will continue to get hot. And in, in the long run, Venus is probably a picture of the the fate of the Earth. Uh, how far off is that? You know, bar- barring intervention by some some intelligent life form, should one ever arise on this planet, <laughs> can, you know, at least a billion years in the future. Okay, just to get that nailed down. Yeah, but the, but the more subtle way that Venus can help us today is by sort of stretching and pushing our climate models. You think of these climate models ideally as things where we take the laws of physics, code them in a machine, put in the qualities of Earth's atmosphere, and sort of let the system run and see what's going to happen to it in the future. And in theory, if those models are really good, you should be able to take the same Earth model and run it for Venus. You put in some different qualities. It's closer to the sun, so there's more radiation coming in. You don't have an ocean on the surface. So you change a couple parameters and then run it for Venus. Does it work? No, the the models don't work for Venus or for Mars, and there are reasons why they work. They break when you push them to that extreme, and, and some of the ways the climate models break are instructive and show us limitations, and some of those limitations actually are relevant to the more immediate problem of better climate models helping us predict what human actions are doing on Earth. So what you're saying is that Venus and Mars are really laboratory experiments for environmental science. I mean, these are experiments that are being run by God, if you will, but but there they are. And we, if we understand what these experiments are telling us, then we might know better how to fix whatever problems we have here. Absolutely. Yeah, they're experiments. And, you know, it's the kind of experiment you can't really run on the Earth, obviously. Well, we're sort of running it uh, and <laughs> real time. in real time. And, and it would be nice to, to have some confidence that we're predicting the outcome of that. But you, you can't just say, well, let's take 10 Earths and do this to one and do that to the other, like you would do for some chemistry uh, theory that you have in the laboratory where you take a beaker and mix different things and see what happens. You, you can't run that experiment. But what you can do is, like you say, look at the experiments that God or nature nature or whatever you, however you want to phrase it, has, has run for us. And if we can learn enough about what's happened in these places and sort of use our models to predict those, then that's the next best thing to being able to run the experiment of Earth multiple times in different ways. People talk about terraforming Mars, fixing it so that our descendants could live on Mars without having to wear spacesuits or being underground all the time and that sort of thing. And it, and it looks like, uh, you know, at least on paper, that's possible. It's not beyond the bounds of what we might be able to do uh, 100 years from now, 200 years, I don't know, something. What about Venus? Could Venus ever be fixed? Yeah. Well, people have modeled ways of terraforming Venus. In fact, you know, there was a classic paper uh, by Carl Sagan many years ago where he talked about the possibility of seeding the clouds of Venus with bacteria that would, you know, eat CO2 and deposit organic matter on the surface of Venus and uh, sort of gradually cool the climate by reducing the CO2. Other people pointed out that that may not work physically because the stuff in the lower atmosphere would just sort of decompose back to CO2. But there have been other other schemes for Venus. You know, if you want to get really science fiction-y about it, you can throw asteroids at Venus and throw up enough dust in the atmosphere so that you collapse the greenhouse. I mean, the main problem with Venus, even if you could shut off the 
greenhouse and get the get the atmosphere to sort of collapse and be cooler is that it still doesn't have any water. So if you really want to fix Venus, you'd have to throw a lot of comets at Venus and 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 water it. And that you know that's not going to be easy. Are there any plans to put anything down onto the surface of Venus again? Well, you know, lots of plans, but no funds. Yeah. But but actually, you raise a a very important point that we've had several orbiters. And the Russians, of course, had landers back in the 80s. It's a difficult thing to do. The surface environment of Venus and the lower atmosphere are not easy environments to explore. And yet it seems as though some of the really important next steps in understanding Venus are going to require operating on the surface and in the lower atmosphere. And there are some some wonderful plans. In fact, NASA just commissioned a a study of um, a flagship mission for Venus, which could be the next big flagship mission, perhaps after the the Europa mission. And when we say flagship mission, we mean multi-billion dollar missions, which, which NASA flies once a decade. And if this Venus one gets selected and funded, it would involve landers and balloons and orbiters. And the landers, of course, would have cameras, and they would also have equipment to dig into the soil and really understand what the minerals are, because that's never been done for Venus. The Russians sort of measured some of the chemical elements. They said there's this much potassium, this much sulfur, which gives us some clues as to what the rocks there are made out of. But nobody's measured the actual minerals, and that would be an important next step. You know, what really, what kind of rocks are there, and what stories do those rocks tell us about the long-term history of that planet and how it perhaps has diverged from an Earth-like state. David Grinspoon, thank you very much for being with us. Oh, thanks a lot. It's been fun. David Grinspoon is the curator of the Denver Museum of Science and Nature. Coming up, can we run climate experiments on Earth? Maybe. The future of geoengineering, next. It's Pave New Worlds on Are We Alone? A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Are We Alone? Well, Venus and Mars may be interesting climate experiments to study from afar, but why leave home? A century of pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere is causing sea and atmospheric temperatures to inch upwards on Earth. We can call that a climate experiment of a sort, however unintended it's been. But the one that follows will be deliberate. If the world doesn't reduce its carbon dioxide output to keep the planet from heating up further, some say we may have to resort to Plan B, a technological fix. That's called geoengineering. When it was first suggested with regard to our current climate predicament, it was considered a remote possibility and made scientists and policymakers uncomfortable to even talk about. Geoengineering has since moved from informal discussion to formal debate to a vetting in the public sphere, and now Bill Gates has pledged money to fund geoengineering research. There have been a number of ideas for providing large-scale engineering corrections to our planet's climate system, from sprinkling the ocean with iron to increase algae blooms that would soak up atmospheric CO2, to putting solar deflectors in orbit, to blasting the atmosphere with sulfur particles to reflect sunlight. So far, all of this has been done only on paper, but will it stay that way? Ken Caldera, a climate scientist from the Carnegie Institution's Department of Global Ecology at Stanford University, has joined us in the past to discuss geoengineering. But we've invited him back because just as the politics surrounding climate change are not in stasis, 
neither is the discussion surrounding the technological fix. Okay, Ken, so you routinely get dragged back into the studio to talk about geoengineering, and this is no exception. Welcome back. Good to be back. So, Ken, you and I actually spoke about four years ago about geoengineering, and back then, geoengineering seemed more of a hypothetical plan B for cooling the Earth than it did a real plan. But it was so controversial at the time that scientists were actually divided about whether or not they should even talk about it. What's changed? In the past few years, the discussion has shifted from whether we need to research these geoengineering options to the question of what kind of research do we need and how much of that research do we need. But I think at this point, most of the scientific community believes we do need to look into these options. So do you think that there's been more support for geoengineering or technological fixes since Copenhagen failed to produce any concrete solutions or a timetable for pulling back on CO2? The failure to have any real success in Copenhagen has made most people realize that carbon dioxide emissions and planetary temperatures are likely to keep increasing for some time. And while we would like to see those trends reverse, the uh, potential for needing to do something extreme to reverse those trends is becoming increasingly real. Now, there have been a lot of ideas bandied about over the past few years. Putting these big solar reflectors into space was one. Iron fertilization of the ocean so that the oceans would absorb more CO2, spraying sulfur into the air to cool the planet, sort of the Pinatubo effect, named after the volcano that erupted. What of these areas, any of them, are emerging as most promising? I think if we found out today that Greenland was sliding into the oceans and that the sea level was going to start rising dramatically right away and we needed to do something next year, what we would do is put tiny dust particles or aerosols into the stratosphere, which is the upper portion of the atmosphere. And these particles would reflect sunlight back to space. And this would essentially be doing what Mount Pinatubo did in 1991. Mount Pinatubo was a big volcano, and the year following that volcano, the Earth cooled as a result of all the sulfate particles in the stratosphere. And there's potential to improve on what nature has done by making designer particles that would have better properties and might be distributed through a broader altitude range. But I think the leading candidate now is for reflective particles high in the atmosphere. There's also some suggestion that we could whiten clouds over the ocean by producing a fine mist of seawater spray in parts of the ocean. The idea that whiter clouds reflect more sunlight? Right. If we think of a rain cloud before it's about to rain, the clouds tend to be gray and dark, and they're gray and dark because the droplets are big and about to fall out. White fluffy clouds have little tiny droplets, and by making a fine mist of seawater, those little tiny droplets in the mist will form the nuclei for the cloud droplets and allow the clouds to have more tiny droplets that are whiter. A lot of these ideas are going from paper into the laboratory, if not the field, and they are getting backing, whereas, as we said a few years ago, it was very hush-hush, even the idea. Bill Gates has gotten involved to fund geoengineering research. One of the areas he seems to be looking into is reflecting sunlight in the stratosphere. Is that the Pinatubo approach? Uh, That is correct. Mm -hmm. And in full disclosure, some of that money has gone to you. 
Yes, I'm getting support indirectly, I should say, uh, through funds that were donated by Bill Gates, and that's supporting about three postdocs for my group and as well as some computer time. Why is he interested in this, in, in supporting geoengineering research? The postdocs that he's supporting are working on a whole bunch of climate issues and energy issues, and geoengineering is one of them. And I think uh, I mean, Bill Gates can only speak for himself, but I think he's interested in a broad range of options that could reduce risk from climate change. As I understand his position, he would like us to see us reduce our carbon dioxide emissions to zero. But that said, you know, while we'd like to see emissions ramp down as quickly as possible, in every scenario considered by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, even with the scenarios where emissions are reduced, because of the time lags in the system, the planet continues to warm throughout the century. And so despite our best efforts to reduce emissions, we might find ourselves in a situation where climate change becomes intolerable, and we need to look at ways that we might be able to reduce that risk. And so these geoengineering options are not a substitute for emissions reduction, but rather to uh, try to reduce risk uh, while we're reducing emissions. Now, it sounds like in this case, the money of Bill Gates is going into research, and there is a lot of research in geoengineering right now. But at what point, how far can you go in studying geoengineering without testing it? At some point, there need to be tests, and the question are, which tests do you undertake, and at what scale? There are at least two types of tests. There are tests that test sort of engineering hardware or develop process understanding. And these are small tests that are not designed to actually produce climate change. Can you give me an example? Oh, let's say you want to design a nozzle that will make this sea spray uh, to whiten the clouds, that you might want to go out and test the nozzle out in the ocean and see whether the nozzle works. So you're not trying to... something bigger than what's on my garden hose. Uh, this would be a little bit finer spray that's what's on your garden hose, but maybe not be all that much bigger. But the idea is that you're testing hardware or to continue down this path, the, the question of the physics, if you made a fine spray, what would that do to marine clouds? You might study that on the scale of one cloud and there wouldn't be any real large scale or long-term climate change. And so there's one range of tests that are really testing processes or devices at a small scale. The other kind of test would actually affect climate. And that sort of test, we've done some calculations that suggest that in order to really make a detectable effect on climate, that the test itself would have to be, say, at least 10% of a full-scale deployment and continued for many decades. And the reason is this, that there's natural variability in the climate system. One year is warmer or cooler than the next, and there's a drought in one place and not a drought in another place each year. And so if you do a small test and you don't know what, what was resulted from your test and what was a result of natural climate variability, and so the smaller the test, the longer you have to do it for, uh, in order to see the signal through the noise. And so this raises the question of whether we really will ever be able to do a large-scale test on the climate system, because it seems to me that it's unlikely that you would get consensus to do this kind of tests across the international community in the absence of a fairly imminent 
climate threat. And if you did have an imminent climate threat, chances are you're just going to want to deploy a system. So it sounds like you could do a small scale and be safe, but it may take decades. And, and in that case, we probably don't have decades. But also, it's a small scale, so you don't know what the large effects will be, or a full-scale deployment is the other option. And of course, you risk adverse side effects. Yeah, I think this pathway out of this is really through modeling. This is a climate modeler speaking, in that uh, you know we our models try to integrate all of the process understanding, and so we under, try to understand how clouds work. We try to understand how land ecosystems work. We try to understand how radiation physics in the atmosphere works, and we try to combine all these together in a mathematical model represented inside a computer and then use that model to predict what might happen. And we test that against seasonal cycles and looking at the snow line and all kinds of other variables to try to gain confidence in the prediction. And then at some point, we need to trust the models, more or less, and so that, that I mean, that's an unsatisfying situation to say, well, look, we're just going to develop understanding of small-scale processes, and then we're going to have to trust the models for the large-scale outcomes. But unfortunately, I think that might be the situation we've put ourselves in. Now, we're talking about the science, but there's a political aspect to this, too, of course, because we're talking about the whole planet, the sort of technological fixes that you apply to the whole planet. <laughs> there are many different countries on this planet. So who decides who gets to do what? There was discord at Copenhagen. Not everybody agrees on how we should uh, approach solutions to climate change. So what's to stop freelance geoengineering or rogue geoengineering if a country just decides that it wants to shoot sulfur into the air to, to cool it? Are there any regulations in place to stop it from doing so? Right now... Such regulations do not exist, and I think over the next years we will see development of governance structures that will develop regulations in this area. However, I'm not sure if there were ever a real climate emergency that these regulations would mean very much. I mean, let's just imagine the f hypothetical scenario in which the Earth continues warming and China starts going into decades of severe drought that leaves the Chinese political leadership unable to provide food to the Chinese people, if they thought that putting dust particles in the stratosphere would somehow restore climate and allow them to grow food and feed the Chinese people, it's hard to imagine that they would say, oh, well, we don't want to break these international regulations and will instead just let our people starve. And, and the same kind of situation would go for the United States, that if Americans were actually in a famine situation and a president thought, oh, I could feed Americans by, and save American lives by doing this, it would be hard to imagine a political leader resisting that pressure. And so I think that developing governance structures and regulations are really important. But I'm not sure if push comes to shove that it's going to matter. I think people think that they're in an emergency situation. They act without understanding the situation and create a giant fiasco. And so that's why I think it's important to do the research now so that if we are in an emergency situation, that a political leader will have some real understanding of whether these approaches could actually be of help or whether they would just cause a bigger problem. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Ken Caldera is a climate scientist from the Carnegie Institution's Department of Global Ecology at Stanford. And that's it for our show. You can find out more about the subjects and the guests on this show, Pave New Worlds, by going to our website, radio.seti.org, where there's also an archive of past shows. We thank Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Sandra Chung, and Jay Weiler for their help with the program, also the SETI Institute. We're looking for life elsewhere in the universe means understanding it first at home. And the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.